Take your Bible or your Bible app, open up to the Gospel of Mark. In the New Testament, this is the second book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These four witnesses of Christ's life. We'll open up to Mark chapter 12 and begin in verse 28 and read through verse 34. This is God's word. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one, and there is none, no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbors as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is God's word. It is going to accomplish all that it purposes. Praise be to God for it. All right, close your Bibles. Shoot a paper out. Number one to ten. It's pop quiz time. We've been reading the Psalms and the Proverbs for May and June. And let's see how you're doing so far. Number one. What is the total number of chapters of the Psalms and Proverbs added together? 181, yes. 150 Psalms, 31 chapters in Proverbs. Some simple math will get you 181. Question number two, who wrote almost half of the Psalms? Psalm 73. Come on, we're starting out easy here. David. Number three, what Psalm did Jesus quote from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, very good, class. Well done. Psalm 22. In Proverbs, whose house is on the way to Sheol or to death? I will take two answers for this one, class. I will take either the adulteress or I would also take folly. I would count that as correct. There are some of you like nervous. You got like anxiety here when I say pop quiz time, close your books, get some paper out, number together. I mean, some of you high schoolers, I mean, in Roanoke County's done, but I, I talked to some in Salem High School and Roanoke City, they're still going. They got to test out this week. Have you, do you get anxiety at test? Do you remember exam time in school? Do you remember going to test for your driver's license? Getting behind the wheel, behind that DMV, with that DMV person, driving around town? Your driving instructor? That exam in college? That certification at work that you studied and labored over just so you can now go to the next thing in, in your workplace. T- test anxiety. And so we as good Christians will open up to Philippians 4 and we will say, do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving and your request. Let your request be made known to God. Be anxious about nothing. And we really go after this verse. It's our favorite verse around test time. The Lord is at hand. It's what precedes that. Tests are a part of life. Tests are opportunity for us to show what we know and what we can do. We may not like tests, but tests are important to show what we know and what we can do. Next question. Should we ever test God? See someone shaking their head? No. Now we should never put the Lord our God to the test, as Israel did in the wilderness. 
He is the creator. We are the creature. He, we have no right to say, Lord, we're going to test you to see what you know and what you can do. We are never to put the Lord our God to the test. We are not in place. We are creature. He is creator. We are limited in understanding. He is all wise one. Does God put us to the test? You sheepishly may say yes, but inside you have this test anxiety of like, I remember what tests were like in school and at the workplace and so forth. And is this what God is like? Trying to see what I'm going to get right and wrong? My oldest son had a professor this past semester. He said it almost felt like he took joy in seeing us fail tests. Is this how we see God? He's just there to get us. It is good and right for God to put us to the test. As we continue to read Psalms, have you heard this in the Psalms? To test our minds and our hearts in Psalm 7. To test us as silver is tried. We are to count all testing with joy, all joy, when we meet trials of various kinds. For we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, and so steadfastness has full, its full effect. We may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James chapter 1. The testing of our faith, not toward right or wrong, but to life transformation. Third question. Was Jesus tested? Jesus, who is God incarnate, the, the fullness of the deity bodily dwelling among us, full of grace and truth, was he tested? And we may be tempted to say, well, we shouldn't test God because this is God. Who, who are we to test God? But here is God who comes to us and yet humbles himself to even learn obedience, the scripture says. We don't know much of those first three decades of his life, but we do see testing in the wilderness right after his baptism. We see testing all the way through his life and ministry. We see testing into the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to the cross of Calvary. This is the mystery of his dual nature. God is fully God, or Jesus is fully God and fully man. And we see Jesus tested. Today in today's passage, I want you to just see it. We're in Mark. We, we've not been going through Mark. We, we read and studied Mark in the fall. We're just jumping into chapter 12, but if you look at chapter 11, if you close your Bibles, open those back up. Chapter 11, what do you see at the very beginning of chapter 11? It's Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, now the time is, the hour is at hand. The time is being fulfilled and Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. This is the last week of his earthly life. The Passion Week. So the beginning of chapter 11, let's set this in context. Let's not read this passage and just find a memory verse in it and not understand what's going on here. Mark chapter 11, we're now into Passion Week. Sunday, he's lauded and welcomed into Jerusalem. But by the time we get to this passage, we are now on Tuesday. Mark chapter 11, verse 27 to 12, verse 44 are episodes of how he is opposed, tested by the Sanhedrin. Mark 11, verse 27, And they, that is Jesus and his disciples, came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do them. His ministry has been characterized with authority from the beginning. We go back to Mark chapter 1, and it says this, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, exousia, and not, he didn't have, it's not teaching just like the scribes. We can all say right things. We can all even say true things. But is it said with authority? And this is how Jesus taught this 
Galilean and from Nazareth. The Sanhedrin were an influential governing body of 71 members. They dominated the religious life, even the political life. We would call them the establishment. And here comes this Galilean teacher from Nazareth, no less, who's proclaiming the kingdom of God, working miracles, and leading a populist movement who see him as the long-expected king. What do you think the establishment thinks of this? The Sanhedrin. Well, they're going to look and observe here at the beginning. Duck and dodge here for some chapters. But by the time we're here in Mark chapter 11, they are fuming. And they see an opportunity ripe to get rid of him. They want to entrap him so that he could be arrested and killed. Does Jesus try to evade them? For the past couple years, he's kind of been moving about. It's not been his time yet. Does Jesus try to escape? Never. He even reveals this about his opposition through Mark. He says this three times. Let me read once. Mark 8. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. That prophecy is repeated. Chapter 11, they are fuming. Chapter 12 is our verse today. God's purposes are always worked out even in the face of human evil. They are plotting His death And God's purposes are being worked out. Hold that together in tension. Because do you believe this? Because if you do not believe this, we're going to have a very small God who's not in control. If God's purposes are even being worked out in the face of this world's evil, if you do not believe that, you will doubt God when you see the evil of this world. You will see horrendous things done in our news, in our history books, to you, by you. And is God sovereign? You will suffer in your, this life. You have, you will. And if God is not at work, even in the face of evil, you will despair of soul. What the Sanhedrin meant for evil against Jesus, God meant for good to bring about the salvation of many. We even see the echoes of Christ there at Joseph's story in Genesis. Do we truly believe Romans 8.28? I know it's a memory verse, but has it penetrated our hearts? We know that for those who love God, love God. God. All things work together for good. Those who are called according to his purpose. So for the past many years, these religious leaders, these Sanhedrin have been fuming, plotting. Now climax is coming. Is Jesus just going to escape? He goes straight on and meets them here on this Tuesday. On this Tuesday, some Pharisees of the Sanhedrin stroll up to him and quiz him about, should we pay taxes to Caesar? These are the religious legalists who are now going to try to entrap him. These Pharisees who've taken God's law and added more stipulation to it for its proper exercise are now trying to entrap him with a question of the law. Should we pay taxes? taxes to Caesar. 
these religious legalists. From that encounter, he then turns the corner and there are the Sadducees questioning him about the resurrection. Jesus, there's a woman who got married. Husband died. Married a brother. Husband died. Married a brother. Husband died. So on. In the resurrection, Jesus, who's going to be her husband? They didn't even believe in the resurrection. These are anti-supernaturalists. They denied the resurrection. They denied that there were even angels. These are just the religious liberals of the day. Then comes a third group in a third encounter testing Jesus on how to interpret the Scripture. The scribes. Jesus taught with authority, not like the scribes. And here comes a scribe. These religious traditionalists, teachers of the law, sometimes even called just lawyers here in the, no, no offense, Christina, different working out. In each of these stories, they address him as teacher. And in each of these, he demonstrates an unworldly, just a supernatural authority. Before we jump into this third encounter, I want to ask you what is more of your inclination? Examine, take stock of your own heart. All, we're going to have all three of these at work. We are going to love being a legalist at times. We are going to love saying, God, what do you mean to do? Good, I'll do more. I'm going to go above and beyond. I want. That's wise, but I can do more for you, God, and I'll add to it. And not only for me, I'll put it on everybody else too and make them feel guilty for not measuring up. But thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that man over there, says the Pharisee as he prays in the temple. Ah, but we also like being liberal too. Free. We're free. Grace. We're just going to cheapen this grace. We're going to be so free. We're going to be so free that our worldview is shaped by the world and not by God's word. We need a word view to have a worldview. But if we don't love God's word, our worldview will just, it'll just shift with the sands of time, with whatever is the sensibility of that generation. We also will be the traditionalists. All of us will be. Even you who are young of age, you like things your way. We like our culture. We like the things the way they have been. We like it to be predictable, controllable. And so the scribes would take a controllable, predictable word and just go around to the synagogues and preserve the law. Where is your inclination this day, friends? I know that we read, we, we read Mark's gospel and we're always up there, oh yeah, I'm right there, I'm one of the disciples walking alongside. We always read ourselves into the gospel as one of the disciples. Which are you, more like Peter, more like John? Friends, we are the scribe. We are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. All of these groups are offended by Jesus. They are all threatened by Jesus. They all oppose him. They all take turns testing him. Let's look at this third test. The Pharisees and the Sadducees have taken their turn. Here comes a scribe to take his swipe. Come with me to verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. This busy day, this busy Tuesday at the temple. He saw that Jesus answered him well and said, Which commandment is the most important of all? That scribe, we're just like the scribe. We like to rank things. We want to know what's the most important, the greatest. The biggest pop song of 1987. You can go to Billboard, you can like look each, each year, even each decade. 1987, Walk Like an Egyptian by the Bengals. Some of you have no idea who that is. But then you remember, oh yeah, I watched Gilmore Girls. They made a cameo appearance there. 
That's right. Best quarterback of all time. We get to watch him now. Tom Brady? New England Patriots? Best weatherman, weather person in Roanoke. Most accurate. Brent Watts, WDBJ7, according to Roanoke Magazine. We like lists. We like rankings. We want to see what's the most important, the most influential. And as we read the law, there's 613 statutes. 613 commandments. What's great and not as important? What's heavy and light? Teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law? We like to know what's most important. What's the most important question that you have today? In this distracting world where we've got so many things clouding our thoughts, what's most important? What will be the most important thing you do today? It's wisdom to take stock and to number our days. What's the most important thing you'll do today? What commandment is the most important, Jesus? There's 613. Can you tell us which one is the most important? Perhaps he's trying to quiz him, or perhaps he's just curious. You've seen this unnatural authority he's teaching with. He knows his buddies are plotting death. Maybe there's some sincerity here, or maybe there's just a testing here. But here comes this Galilean teacher. <laughs> and it's so ironic, it's so funny. He's here quizzing this Galilean who's actually God incarnate, God in the flesh. This man is face to face with God, quizzing him. What's most important? Look at the humility of Jesus to even walk in this humanity. The most important is Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbors yourself. There is no other commandment, singular, greater than these. Jesus begins with the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel. Shema, O Israel. This is Deuteronomy 6.4. This is how every worship service at the synagogue was begun. This is how every pious Jew would pray in the morning and pray in the evening, beginning with the Shema. They would have it on their doorposts. They would have it around their, their heads. They would on their wrist. We serve one God. There's many gods that our neighboring nations are, are worshiping, but there's only one true living God. Everyone knew this. This was the creed of Israel. This monotheism, one God. Such mystery right here, because God the Son, second person of the Trinity, is now standing in flesh, quoting this law to this man. Jesus continues in Deuteronomy 6 by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. These are four components of our being, our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. But let's don't get so overly dissecting of these. Don't try to just, we can get lost and, and lose sight of the bigger picture. Like, we are so mysterious. Right now you're breathing and you're not even thinking about it. Right now we have consciousness. Where is our soul? How does it, how does it relate to our bodily organs? We've got, nerve, we got nerves that are firing and synapses that are... It's so fearfully and wonderfully marvelous how we were made. So let's not dissect it. Let's just, all of who we are is to love God. Everything that we have is from God. So everything belongs to Him. He's the greatest being of all. There He's to be worshipped with all that we have, all of our love. Can you ever love too much? Could we ever say, God, I've loved you enough? Is there any point that we can stop and say, well, I've loved God fully? 
How do you measure this? Do you quantify it? Everything that we have, do we, there's not a place in the cosmos that anybody can, Christ can't just say, it's mine. You are his. You belong to him. You are made in his image. There's nothing you get to hold to your own. Jesus is not done answering the scribe. He continues over and, and loops in Leviticus 19.16 with the second most important commandment. Love our neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. I love that about Jesus because he answers it, but he gives a 1A and a 1B answer to the most important commandment, which is love, because love is multidirectional. Love is relational. Love is vertical, if I can use that direction, to God, even as God has so descended to us. Love is horizontal to neighbor. The brilliance of Jesus' answer is how encapsulating it is. Even take the Ten Commandments. Love God. That just summed up commandments one through four. Love your neighbor. That took care of five through ten. We just summed up the Ten Commandments with one word, love. We can sum up the rest of the entire law as love. Love is the sum of the law. It's the greatest commandment. It's the most important. But you already knew that. This is not something new. The question is not knowing it. The test is obeying it. How does the scribe respond to Jesus? Verse 32. You are right, teacher. Bravo. Hear, hear. Well said. That's really what that exclamation says. This is so ironic still. He is standing face to face to God incarnate and is patting him on the back. Good job, Jesus. You Galilean populist movement leader. He also does good. We should learn from this. He, reflect, he does reflective listening. Sometimes if you just got to organize your thoughts, make sure you understand what the person's saying. So he just reflects back what Jesus just said. He reflects back the Shema. He reflects back Deuteronomy 6 and love for God. He also reflects back Leviticus and love for neighbor. He does reflective listening. Then he adds something. This is a familiar passage, but look to the addition. What else does the scribe qualify Jesus' answer with? And it's on this I want our hearts to catch fire. You've answered right. God is one. We're to love God. We're to love our neighbor. This is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is a remarkable statement for a scribe. In A.D. 30-33 or so. This is remarkable. The scribes were teaching in the synagogues, but there was daily worship at the temple here in Jerusalem. Daily sacrifices and offerings at the temple. Annual festivals at the temple. The temple was the hub of religious life in Israel. And this scribe says that your answer is of love is much more than the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. The day of atonement, when we would come into the temple... And a goat would be sacrificed and one would be sent in the wilderness. We're free from our sin. Our sin is taken away from us. There's a sin. Someone has taken our sin for us. Passover. You gather in the spring because the Lord passed over us. We have life in the Passover lamb sacrificed on our behalf. This scribe is saying that love is greater than all of whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
We are only able to relate to God through sacrifice. God is holy. We are not. We are sinful at our core. Love is just not a quick little sentiment that just bridges that gap. Woe to us if we just reduce love to some little sentiment and just say, well, love just, love wins. How? We only relate to God through sacrifice. God is holy. We are not. We are sinful. We need something to take our place, to take the judgment for our sin so that we can then have relationship reconciliation to God. Sacrifice is commanded by the law. Without sacrifice, there is no covenant relationship to God. Let me repeat it one more time. Without sacrifice, there is no covenant relationship to God. And yet this scribe quickly adds this phrase to this. It's much more than offerings or sacrifices. How do we make sense of this? Is he just throwing the sacrificial system in the garbage here? There's two nouns here, um, sacrifice and offering, which harken back to Hosea, the prophet Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Does this mean we just quickly discard offerings and sacrifices? Is God just changing his plan? Ah, I'm gonna, I'll try to relate to him now with sacrifices, but ah, now I got my son there. That's done with. Let's start over. Plan B. Plan A was commanded by God, who did not change his mind. But plan A is finding its fulfillment in the one standing in front of the scribe. We can only relate to God through sacrifice. Sacrifice is the means of our salvation. God gave the covenant law as love. God established the sacrificial system as love. Read the Old Testament like that. Please read the Old Testament as God's love for us, His grace for us. We read the Passover. We're delivered out of bondage. We read the Day of Atonement. We're saved from our sin. And now in this third decade on how we're marking time, A.D. In just about 40 years, the temple is going to be destroyed in 70 A.D. as the Romans besiege Jerusalem and ransack and destroy the temple. And there's going to be a crisis of faith for Jews on how to worship and approach God. We approach and relate to God through sacrifice. And in 40 years, this temple is going to be gone. Don't worry, I'll raise it up in three days, he said. He wasn't talking about that. The temple, the, the, the presence, the manifest presence of God on earth is, is not there anymore. It's in Christ. And he's come to fulfill the law. He is that Passover lamb. He is that priest. He is the temple itself. But on this Tuesday before the Friday crucifixion, the scribe says that love is greater, much more, than offerings and sacrifices. It's a remarkable statement. He doesn't even know what he's saying. We don't even know what we're saying sometimes. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This was an esteemed leader. He was a teacher of the law. And here's an itinerant Galilean teacher who just arrests the room. 
You're not far from the kingdom of God. The scribe went testing Jesus that day with the rest of the Sanhedrin. And Jesus says, you're so close. I mean, you're so... I mean, this scribe is so close with breaking allegiance with his fellow leaders to really get at the heart of the message of this Galilean. He's so close. He's so close to recognizing Jesus as the promised Messiah, the one who is bringing about the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. One step changes everything. Where are you this morning? I want to ask, how close are you to the kingdom of God? Are you far away and could care less? Are you, are you up here, close, and you're like, you got, I got a lot of questions about who this Jesus is. Or is there peace and new birth in your heart? I've seen Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. Love. Just love consummated to this fallen world. What's the most important question that I pray is pressing on our hearts today? Jesus answered here is what is most important. Listen to what Paul calls of first importance. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you now stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Love is the most important. The gospel is of first importance. You don't need to be a professor of logic to say the gospel is love. It is most important, of first importance. This is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. His life that God is eternal Son and forever glory would come in the frailty of human flesh, born of a virgin? Small town Bethlehem raised up in small town Nazareth? A carpenter's son? This is our God? Full of grace and truth, going public in ministry, proclaiming the kingdom of God? Working miracles, loving sinners, calling disciples. Why would he do this? Love. For God so loved his, the world that he sent his only son. His beloved son. In love, Christ came. Jesus died for our sin. The Holy One becomes the sacrifice for sin. The innocent one becomes condemned on a Roman cross. The giver of life is now dead and buried. The creator of all. A corpse behind a guarded stone. It's love. And on the third day, according to His own word and fulfillment of Scripture, He is raised. Victorious over sin, death, and evil. Who can hold Him? Death, where is your sting? He is now risen from the grave, ascended into heaven where He is now sits at the right hand of God. This is not some abstract idea. This is a person in human flesh with scars to prove it, in heavenly glory in a state that we will be when we see Him. He is coming back again to judge the entire world and to make all things right. Those who know and love Him will be welcomed into eternal 
bliss. Things that our mind, our, our eyes and ears have not even thought about. And those who don't know and love him, rightful wrath into eternal condemnation to hell. Who do you say he is? This is a first importance. If this is a question you're still wrestling with, it's the question to, to stay on. This is of first importance. This is the message of love. Listen to how John summarizes this in his epistle, chapter 4, the first one. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we may live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Do you hear the two great commandments there? Love of God love of one another? Do you hear the nature of love? Sacrifice? I mean, we'll go to the pool and we'll eat a hot dog or hamburger tomorrow. But let's don't reduce love to some sentiment. Love is sacrifice in relationship. And in relationship to this country, many sacrifice their lives in love. That's a, a national level. This is a worldly level of love that we're talking about here. Now imagine cosmic level. For eternity level, God so loved us that he sent his son. How close are you to this kingdom? Can I tell you the story of one man? He was born in 1703. He was the 15th child of Samuel and Susanna Wesley. His name was John. He had a good upbringing by an unusually talented and dedicated mother. We, we met together last night in a book club. We read the book, No Little Women. Susanna Wesley would have fit that No Little Woman. He went on to a brilliant career at Oxford where he was elected a fellow in Leaking College at 1726. He was a double professor of Greek and logic he was ordained into the Church of England at 1726. When he returned to Oxford, he, led a, he joined a group with his brother Charles and another man, George Whitfield, and they dedicated themselves to a holy life. And they were derisively nicknamed the Holy Club. They met daily, weekly for prayer, the study of the Greek New Testament held devotional exercises together. John prayed an hour every day, fasted twice a week, visited the prisons, assisted the poor and the sick, all the while thinking he was a Christian. In 1735, he accepted an invitation from the Society of the Propagation of the Gospel to become a missionary here, stateside, across the ocean in Georgia to the Native Americans. He failed miserably. He had conflicts with his colleagues. He almost died from disease. He got on a boat to return to England. And he wrote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? The mission he was on taught him the waywardness and the wickedness of his own heart. But on his way, and along the way, he met a band of Moravian Christians whose unique and simple faith had a great impression upon him. And when he returned to London, he sought one of those leaders out. And he writes that he was clearly convinced of unbelief, of the want of faith whereby alone we are saved. On the morning of May 24th, 1738, he opened his Bible haphazardly and his eyes fell on the text of Mark 12, 34. You are not far from the kingdom of God. 
This man who is wrestling with his unbelief and his failed attempts at righteousness. This very same statement that was told to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That evening, he attended a meeting and heard someone just read aloud Luther's preface to the epistle of the Romans. And he records in his journal, about 8.45 p.m., while he was describing the change at which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. He had tried to live by the law in his own self-righteousness. But he had to finally come to the point to realize that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and this is love demonstrated to us. And his heart was strangely warmed at such salvation. He would go on to preach in churches, in the mines, in the fields, on the streets, on horseback. He would even stand on his, his father's tombstone and preach the gospel. He preached 42,000 sermons, averaged about 4,500 miles a week, rode 60 to 70 miles a day, and preached th three sermons a day. I don't know how he... I was trying to do one a week, guys. When he was 83, he wrote in his diary, I am in wonder to myself. I am never tired, even with preaching, writing, or traveling. Why? For Christ, love compels us. We are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live shall no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died for them and was raised again. That was the Apostle Paul's confession in 2 Corinthians 5. Love is sacrifice and relationship. And if you realize all that God has sacrificed to love you, what more do we have but than to sacrifice what we have in love for him and love for others? The gospel is this greatest, most important news that can be told. And it is to go to the ends of the earth. Where are you this morning? Are you not far? In this ever so close Christianity? I just want to know, where are the John Wesleys in our land? Where are they even in this room? One step will make all the difference. I really don't see a bunch of holy clubs gathering up in this day. I don't see a lot of us huddled up in prayer and fasting and, and, and afflicting ourselves, trying to live it out in self-righteousness. God, if I can just do it more, then I'll get it. I don't see that in our land. But I pray that there would be the same emptiness that would hit us when we realize we're, we're trying to be so influential. We're trying to be so right with God and with others by being so much like the world. We're trying so hard to be relevant. Man, if we can just baptize it like this, and if we can just do it like this, man, then the world will hear it. And it's still our own good work of self-righteousness, thinking that we can massage and maneuver in ministry to reach a dying world and never proclaim the gospel because it's never warmed our hearts. Where are the John Wesleys today? Are we at the end of ourselves yet? We go out to convert others, but who's going to convert us? Anything that we do apart from love is nothing. Nothing apart from a strangely warmed heart which is compelled by love to share Jesus Christ. Love is commitment and sacrifice in relationship. We're pre I'm preaching this message as a part of a series to look at our 
new purpose statement, shining the light of Jesus and knowing and following him. I mean, there's, there's evidences of grace I would love to see in our lives. And it would be so easy for me just to preach some law at you right now. I mean, I really want us to, I mean, I've got a reading plan for us out there to read through the Psalms and Proverbs. But even that, apart from love, is a dead work. I'd love us to be praying together. I'd love to be reading scripture together. I'd love us to, to, to really live this life together. And, and how can we measure this and see this apart from love, apart from a changed, revived, warmed heart? It is nothing. I'd love to see us not neglecting together the worship of God each week on the Lord's Day. I'd love to see us bearing one another's burdens. I'd love to see forgiving one another. I'd love to see sacrificial giving to the church and to each other. Apart from love, there's nothing. What will be most reviving in our church is an awakening of love. Do we love Him? Do you love me? Jesus asked the sheepish disciple, Peter, who abandoned him at the cross and denied him. What did Jesus come back to him with? Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Do you love me? Then it will get worked out in sacrifice and commitment in relationship. Do you love me? Go love others. This is how we're to shine the light of the gospel, to shine the light of Jesus and knowing and following him. I close with this. Forgive me, I have no sense of time right now. Revelation 2. Here's the test, friends. Not towards anxiety, but may it equip in us, awaken us in us a move of the Spirit, I pray. This is Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place unless you repent. The church in Ephesus was doing a good job. They, they looked like a successful church. They had good doctrine. They probably had good structure, good ministries. Just didn't have love. It abandoned it. So I'm asking you legalist, repent today and return to your first love. I'm asking you religious liberal, repent and come back to a first love in Christ. Even to the scribe, to us traditionalists who just like it the way it is, repent and let's return back to a first love, to the work of the Spirit. If we do not, a lampstand will be removed. We won't shine the light of Jesus even though it may be on our letterhead, our website. This is now the testing of our faith before us, and this is a good, good thing. Will we know God's love for us in Christ Jesus, and when will we then love others in Jesus' name? Love is the greatest. Love is the most important. We love because he first loved us. Let's pray.